Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan, and uh, <clears throat> I serve here as a local pastor, primarily uh, in the Verdun and NDG neighborhoods, but I'm grateful to be able to join you this morning um, as we look at this text in Mark, uh, chapter 4, towards the end. And if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to just open it so you can follow along. If not, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> we are, as uh, Evan mentioned, we've been going verse by verse through this series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, and looking at the person of Jesus, and why are we doing it that way? Well, because the person of Jesus in our culture, there's all sorts of commentary about him. We have all sorts of ways of seeing him ourselves, but the reason we go verse by verse through the text of this biography of Jesus is because we want to see him for who he really is. Jesus for who he really is. And often we find that he catches us by surprise in ways that we don't expect and things we don't expect. This story that we're looking at today is one, though, that it might feel difficult for that to occur to us, the story of uh, Jesus calming the storm as it might be you know, named in the, in the margin of your Bible is a rather famous one. It's a rather, rather well-known story, and so it's easy for us to approach this text and just say, oh, yes, 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 that's the story about how Jesus can give our hearts peace in the midst of life storms. That's all very nice. Um, but let me say this. That's actually not primarily what this story is about. It's too easy for us to jump to allegorizing it. So what is this story actually about? What is the core thing that this text is trying to communicate to us? Well, we'll find out. You just track with me today. This is sinking as I write in front of me. I'm going to get this one. Um, <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. <clears throat> On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, <clears throat> this is a request that I've I've wondered about. I used to work, Jesus asking them to go to the other side, I used to work um, as an engineer up north, um, a mining engineer before I became a pastor. And uh, I worked at a, a, a work camp where you'd fly in, you'd work two weeks, 12-hour days every day, and you fly home and you have two weeks off. Um, and uh, there was multiple times, you know, we, we had this office in downtown Montreal, and every time, most, most times I was there, but not every time, the, the big wigs, the, the bosses in Montreal would come up and do a visit, and they would be there for a few hours, and then they would leave. And inevitably, what happens at most uh, work sites that have head offices happen there, and that is that there was a disconnect between what was happening on site and what the head office had in mind. And, and I would often hear after the, the bosses had left this sort of talk that people were afraid. They were afraid that the bosses had made decisions that were detrimental to the life of the project, and they would be detrimental just because they hadn't taken enough time to talk to the people who were really on the ground who had the expertise, right? They must have made a terrible decision. And I can't but help but wonder if the disciples felt like this as well about the decision that Jesus had made that we read about here in verse 35. It says, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. See, after all, what was the livelihood of some of these disciples before they met Jesus? Fishermen, that's right. And what do we know about fishermen in evening skies? Okay, today people have the weather network. 
Back then, they would look at the evening skies before they set sail. And I can't help but wonder if they looked at those evening skies and thought, this is a terrible idea. What are we doing? And it doesn't say that. It just says when evening had come. But it's, it's likely they thought that this went against their best judgment. You know, this went against their reasoning as fishermen. This went against their experiences of being fishermen. And yet, what do we see in the text? They still do it. That Jesus' word had priority over their own reasoning. That Jesus' word had priority over even their own experiences. Is that true for you? Is that true in your own life? Does Jesus' word, does who he says he is, is the scripture a priority over your own reasoning and even over your own experiences? Is it through the lens of Jesus that we interpret our lives? Is Is it the other way around? I like to think of it this way. Jesus wasn't looking at the weather to know what to do. He was looking at his father's will. He wasn't looking at the weather. He was looking to his Father's will. Does the weather of the day or does the will of God determine what you do? It's a tricky one to know how to flesh out, isn't it? It's tricky because there's all sorts of reasoning and experiences that are natural and normal to us, and it's hard to understand how Jesus might reshape or reframe those things, but he does. Um, Even a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus was, by his own family, considered to be out of his mind. Jesus, you're out of your mind. He was unreasonable. We're talking about making decisions based on reason and experience. Jesus was accused of being unreasonable. He was out of his mind. And yet, what do we see Paul tell us later in the epistles? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Wow. There is a reasonableness to who Jesus is, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once you've encountered him, once you know Jesus, that turns and reshapes everything. Isn't that something? It appears, though, outside of it as a sort of foolishness that you would live your life under the words of the authority of somebody else. But if he's God, wouldn't that be reasonable? Anyway, what happens? Verse 36. Let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. Now, that's kind of funny phrasing in the English Standard Version. They took him in the boat just as he was. What is he just as he was in the boating? I don't know. Actually, it's the first verse of this chapter is explains how there was a large crowd. So Jesus actually got into a boat to teach from the water so his voice would carry to the whole crowd. And so when it says they took him in the boat just as he was, in other words, he was already in the boat. He was already there in the boat, so they just set sail. (laughs) Um, And so they leave these crowds behind, and they set off to encounter what we see in verse uh, 37, which is a great windstorm. Isn't that interesting? They leave the pressure of the crowd, the social pressure and the obligations and the expectations only to encounter natural disaster, another storm, another form of pressure. How often is that true in our own lives? 
that when we go through suffering, it is also often not just social pressures. It's not often not just the expectation of friends and family and so on. It is also the calamity itself, the disease or the natural event that is occurring in our lives and how difficult that is. Like they say, when it rains, it pours. And so that's what we see. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. So we get a picture of what's going on here, right? You have, you know, the multiple boats that have all set out in the evening and then there's Jesus and he's asleep, he's asleep, crazy. Um, And you have the waves breaking into the boat and all of these sorts of details you're reading, they seem to be sort of like throwaway details. It's evening and there was other boats when we left. They sort of read throwaway details like you would read an eyewitness account, which is what scholars say this is exactly what this is. This is an eyewitness account. This is what happened that night on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee sits in a low place between some mountains. Storms can come up quite quickly. That's still true today. Has anybody here been in a boat in a storm? I asked this question this morning. I had about five hands. Well, you're all... You've all been spared. <laughs> uh, I've never been in a boat in a real storm. I was once in a rainstorm with no wind and once in a windstorm with no quite rain. It was more just like we were in the small boat in the Caribbean and we're like, we thought we'd be extra adventurous. So we like cut between these two like sheltered islands across the open sea. And that was a bad idea. Like you quickly realize how big waves can be even on a calm day. And it's like, you could be gone in an instant. You're just so small, the sea will just swallow you up. And I, I felt fear. And these, these fishermen, some of them, they felt fear too. This must have been a serious storm. They're so afraid, they don't know what to do. And so they're looking around like, okay, we're going to wake up Jesus. And so it says, um, they woke him and they said to him, now, before I read what the disciples said to Jesus, what do you think the disciples said to Jesus. And this is a question for people who don't have the text in front of them. If you were to guess, you're in a you know, windstorm and it's getting crazy and you're a fisherman, but you're scared to this point, what, what would you ask Jesus? What would you say to Jesus in this instant? How are you sleeping? What the heck? <laughs> right? <laughs> is this even possible? Anybody else? Help! <laughs> yeah, which is kind of what we see them uh, getting at. These are, the, these are the questions that we would expect from Jesus. Now, here's the question that they actually ask, which I think it sort of goes one layer below that. They say this, Teacher, do you not care we are perishing? Jesus, don't you care we're dying? <laughs> we're dying. See, this isn't the question we default ask. We're like, why is he sleeping? Or like, can you help us? We're afraid. Like, we might die, you know. But don't you care? We're dying. This is the question that they immediately think of. We don't immediately think of it. Why? Well, because it's really hard to put ourselves into the shoes of other people's suffering. But if you've actually ever been through suffering yourself, you'll know that inevitably this is the question that you want to ask God. God, do you care? God, do you care? Do you care about this diagnosis I've just received? Do you care about the fact that I went through a trauma as a child? Do you care about the fact that I couldn't make rent this month? 
Or are you just asleep? Are you just asleep? What does Jesus do? Verse 39, he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I love how this reads. Jesus doesn't need any abradica, dabrica, I don't know, whatever they say. He doesn't need those kinds of spells. See, one commentary points out how it's like I would be able to say to my children, Hazel or Jackson, shh, be quiet. Jesus was able to say to this raging storm, peace be still. See, I, I have 50% success rate with my kids or something. <laughs> this storm obeyed Jesus completely. Isn't that amazing? You know, as I was thinking about this, I had read the story of Jonah to my kids, actually, and I couldn't help but notice the striking parallels that this story has. If you know the story, Jonah, he too was on a boat some 700 years before Jesus, a prophet. He too was in a boat that was taking on water because of a storm. He too was asleep on that boat. And yet, unlike Jesus in this story, Jonah was running from God. And both of them get awoken. And when Jonah is awoken, he says what? He says, basically, if you want to live, I'm going to have to die. If you want to live, I'm going to have to perish. If you want this sea to be calm, you're going to have to throw me in. And it's such a strange story. But that's actually what they do. And the sea becomes calm. And if you know those two stories, you're like, wow, there's a striking number of parallels there. But it seems, but at that point, it seems that the story diverges, right? But in that case, Jonah had to be thrown into the sea for it to become calm. But in this case, Jesus just spoke. But do these stories actually diverge? Do these stories actually, are they actually really different? Because what we find in the life of Jesus is that he would say that the one greater than Jonah is here. He was greater than that prophet. And that by his life, he would actually come to end all storms. Not just the storm like the one we saw in the sea that night, but the storm in our own hearts. The ways with which we disbelieve God, we doubt each other, we criticize each other, we tear each other down the ways with which we cause inevitably suffering to each other and we sin, the storms of our own hearts, that he would take those on. He had come to end all storms one night on a cross. That one night on a cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm, willingly, like Jonah. But unlike Jonah, he was not running away from God. Unlike Jonah, who of his own rebellion and distrust for God had run away. Jesus was not the cause of the sin and the suffering and the brokenness and the disorder and the chaos that we experience. We were. And the waves of God's justice were duly against us, and yet Jesus was thrown into the waves of God's justice, and there couldn't be calm until the storm swept him away. This is what Jesus has done for you and for me. 
that he took on the storms of our lives. He took on the storms and the chaos even of our hearts and was swept away in the waves of it so that peace could come to you, so that God could say, it is finished and proclaim over you in your heart, peace be still. You can know God like that. You can have peace in a stormy heart. And so does God care? Yes. Yes, he cares. Look what he did. Look how he faced the ultimate storm that you have caused for you there so that he can give peace to the storm that you're facing here. That was the ultimate storm. The storms that we face now. If he, if he didn't reject you in that storm, he won't reject you in this one. Does that make sense? In the storms that you face in your life, let that sink deeply into your heart. Just to stretch the water metaphors. <laughs> let it sink into your heart that he faced the storms for you so that you could have peace in him. This is what he's done. You know, historians have pointed out that the, some of the earliest figures of what it meant to be a Christian, they're, they're etched into the burial boxes of Christians in, in Judeo-Palestine. And the figure that is etched in on those boxes is that of a, a ship in the sea, the mast shaped like a cross. Why would they etch that into their coffins? Well, it's because they knew as long as Jesus was on board the boat of their life, no matter what faced them, even martyrdom itself, they were safe in him, that they could have peace in him. And if they can etch that onto their burial boxes, let you etch that onto your heart. You can have peace in him. Know that he cares for you, that he went through the ultimate storm for you, so that whatever storm is raging outside, if you have Jesus in the boat of your life, you can have peace inside. It's possible. It's possible. But notice this. This doesn't mean that there will be no more storm. This doesn't mean that, you know, there will be no more difficulty you face in your life. This is not a claim to your best life now, okay? No, you will face tragedy. You will face pain. You will go through suffering. There will be cancers and traumas and drunk drivers and even martyrdom, God forbid, itself like those early Christians. And yet you can know with Jesus in the boat of your life, you can have peace in him through it. It's possible. It really is. It's so important we bring this out. This is actually what maturity looks like, guys. This is what maturity looks like in Christ. That if you can, maturity in Christ looks like finding peace in him, inner peace in him, even when the outside circumstances are at sea, at storm. That's what maturity looks like. And it's so important that I feel like I bring this out now because there will be times in your life, guys, where there will be situations. Take relationships, for example. Relationships that are just not reconcilable. People who, who, who wrong you, who sin against you, and you extend grace to them, and you extend forgiveness to them, and it doesn't matter what they say, they refuse to admit it, and so no reconciliation can ever happen. And yet, it's possible to still find peace despite that, despite the pain of that, despite the brokenness of that. How? When you find peace in God, 
And that's what maturity looks like. Maturity looks like knowing who you are in Christ Jesus and how he has called you and that he is good to you in whatever you are going through, even if you don't know why it's happening. (laughs) You can still have peace. (laughs) It's possible. And we also have hope that whatever storms we face, that he will see it through. That this life... One day, Jesus will return and calm all storms forever, for all eternity. This is the promise that is made possible by his work in facing the ultimate storm in our lives. Now, I thought I said, you know, Jordan, didn't you say at the beginning that this is not what this story is about? This isn't the main point? Well, yes, that's right. The allegories that come out of this are not the main point. They're a very important point, but they're a point that is completely dependent on something else. What is this dependent on? See, what makes this all possible? What makes it possible to have peace inside even when storms are raging outside in your life? What makes it possible? Well, the answer to that is the same answer as to the question in verse 41. They're filled with great fear and say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? The Jewish disciples on that boat knew the answer. They would have sung it many times in the Psalms. Things like one, Psalm 107:28. They cried to the Lord, that's God, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. See, the disciples knew the answer. That the only one who could hush the waves and still the storm was the creator God himself. And that's who Jesus was claiming to be, that Jesus was claiming to be the Lord of the cosmos. And only when you know him and his identity, only when you know him as who he is, that he actually has power as creator of the whole system to still the storms that are within it. And in that he is good to you in it, then you can have peace inside. All of that allegorizing is completely dependent on who Jesus is and what he actually did that day on the Sea of Galilee. You can't just turn it into a nice story. It falls apart. The allegory does not stand unless this actually happened. And it actually happened. Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. He actually has power over it, and he cares about you. And see, this is what he's done. Now, what does he say to the disciples? He says to them in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? (laughs) This seems like a strange question for Jesus to ask, doesn't it? Why are you still afraid? I mean, like, come on, Jesus. We're we're like dying. Like water's coming in. We can't see the shore. There's winds and waves. What are you thinking? Are we supposed to be excited? (laughs) Hopeful? (laughs) What are we supposed to feel? I think what Jesus is getting at here has something to do with the interplay between faith and fear. The interplay interplay between faith and fear. See, Jesus asks here, why are you so afraid? And I think that so is rather important. See, fear by itself is a natural, emotional, healthy instinct. If a lion jumps in front of me, it's good that I have fear so I, I know to run away, right? But I think what Jesus is bringing out here, so afraid, is indicating that their fear was more than that, that they had let their fears and their anxieties about the situation work themselves into a frenzy to the point that they forgot what God had said and they let it diminish their faith. 
See, what had God said? What, was, what faith was being diminished in this instant? They were supposed to have faith in something. What faith was being diminished? What were they supposed to have faith in? It's in the text. Does anybody know? I missed this on the first reading, so give it your best shot. June, you like the question. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Oh. oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm smiling too. Yeah, I don't want to be too hard on anybody. Um, what was the faith that they were to have? They were to have faith in a, a promise of God. Yeah, that he cared. And that was demonstrated in, in something that he said right at the beginning. Verse 35. Yeah, let us go over to the other side. Jesus had told them right before they even got into the boat, he was going to take them over to the other side. And yet in the middle of the winds and the waves, it obscured their vision and they couldn't see that promise anymore. It obscured their faith and they lost sight of that. And yet Jesus had given them a promise. And I think this is why he rebukes them for their lack of faith, right? They lacked faith in his goodness to take them over to the other side. They began to doubt God's heart for them in this, and we do this too, don't we? Like I brought out, we do this too. We doubt God's heart. God, do you, don't you even care about what I'm going through right now? And the answer, of course, from the cross is loud and clear. Of course I care. I've done this for you. You know, I love that line uh, from Corey Tenboom. This always reminds me of it. She says this, and she went through incredible suffering in her life at a concentration camp. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, don't throw away the ticket. Sit still and trust the conductor. See, one of the takeaways we get from this story is that when Jesus says he will do something, he will do something. When Jesus says he will see us through to the other side, he will see us through to the other side. You can have faith in that regardless of what happens. Jesus will see you through to the other side. He will not let you down. His power is sufficient. He is completely able and his goodness is for you even if you do not feel it and it's obscured by the winds and waves of what you are facing. He will see you through. You can have complete confidence in him. Are you confident like that in him. See, Jesus wants us to have confident faith in him. This is why he gives them this sort of rebuke. Have you still no faith? Or where is the object of your faith? See, it wasn't about the quantity of their faith. It was about who their faith was in, that Jesus was in the boat of their life. And as provided he was in the boat, they were going to be okay. He was going to see them through to the other side. This is incredibly confident faith that we're talking about here, though, isn't it? This is the kind of faith that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 11, where he says, have faith in God. Don't doubt in your heart, but believe that he can work miracles. This is incredible faith. You see, one of the dangers of us just immediately jumping to an allegorized view of this story, as true as it is, is that we inevitably lose sight of who God is and his power and his ability to do the kinds of things he did then, that day, on a day like today. Does that make sense? The story is meant to stir our faith in what is possible in God. If he can st- calm the storm then, he can calm the storm today. Not just the one inside your heart, as true as that is, but the one outside of it as well. 
There's no shortcuts for any of that, but it is still true. So does this mean we should go around then rebuking the weather? <laughs> Next time it rains, peace be still. It's not working. <laughs> is that what it means? No, no. Remember, Paul was in a storm. Paul was a godly guy, a faithful guy, full of faith. And does he turn to the winds and waves and rebuke them? No. What does faith look like in that situation for Paul in that context? Well, actually, God had given him a promise there as well from an angel that he would see them safely, all of the sailors, not one of them would die. He would see them safely through the other side, and that actually was a miracle as well. There was no way out in the Mediterranean Sea that that was likely to happen. And yet what? Paul had confidence. He had faith in God. That's what faith looked like in that situation. I think that's what faith should look like in all situations for us. What has God promised us? He's promised us, I can tell you, on the large scale, certain things, that for those who love God, it will work together for good, even if it's martyrdom itself. Then death, like Augustine would say, becomes a gateway to life immortal. (laughs) It's incredible. We can have confidence like that. This is what faith and confident faith looks like. Okay, but how do we we stir faith like that in our hearts? Because as much as I can say we need to have faith like that, we need to be confident that Jesus can calm the storms today like he did then, if it's his will, if it's in his plans, or we need to be confident he'll see us through and he can work miracles. Like Jesus said in this passage, don't doubt in your heart but have faith in God. How do we stir faith in our heart like that? Because the reality is I can... I can pray that or I can think that, but it doesn't actually stir the confidence in my heart. It actually, I don't know how to muster up those kinds of affections, right? So how do we do that? Well, one of the things we need to understand is that you can't just sort of squeeze your prayer muscle, okay? There's no sort of squeezing the prayer muscle of faith and then it's going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Sam Storms would helpfully call that spiritual uh, pretending. Rather, we need to pursue faith like we pursue any gift of the, of, of the Spirit. That faith is a gift. It's something that comes from God. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to cultivate our hearts to receive it. We have a responsibility to prepare our hearts to receive the gift of faith should God bestow it. The gift of radical confidence in Jesus that if he wants to do something right here, right now, he will do it and he can do it. And I know he will be good in it. Okay, so how do we stir in confidence in our heart and at the same time, right, combat the anxieties and the fears that are playing against them? I'm going to give you sort of two big ideas. One is remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of who God is. You see this in the text at the end, in a sort of backward way. Verse 41, it says, they were filled with great fear. See, the funny thing about this is that the disciples, they had fear when water was coming into the boat. But when the sea is calm, they have great fear. You catch that? (laughs) What's happened? It's not that their fear had gone away. It's the object in the nature of their fear had shifted. The object in the nature of their fear had shifted from what? From the storm to Jesus. They had great fear of God. This is a different sort of fear. This is not a fear of rejection. 
This is not a fear of shame. This is a fear of awe and worship at the justice and the holiness and the power of God. Do you have that kind of fear of God? Do you have great fear of God, a proper fear of God, a healthy fear of God, a fear that leads to awe and that leads to worship? You see, I think one of the most pressing things that is missing in contemporary evangelicalism is a healthy fear and awe of God of his power, of his might, of his justice. We sort of forget the scene of Jesus in Revelation coming in on the white horse with tongue, it says, like a flame of fire. We forget his holiness and his justice against sin and think we can continue living unrepentantly and his grace will just keep being poured out on us more and more and more. But all of these indicate that we have truly, truly lost sight of God just for who he is. See, let's revisit something in this story. Why was Jesus sleeping when the others were awake? Why was he sleeping? How could he sleep? Maybe you could ask. One thing you could say is he was preaching all day, and that's exhausting. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's exhausting. But it could also be, and I think we can equally say that he was confident and his father's power and goodness to bring them through to the other side. (laughs) Do you know when this was reversed, in a way? When was this metric reversed? When are the disciples sleeping and Jesus is awake? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that striking? The disciples are asleep in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is awake and in anxious agony. Why? Because he had a proper fear of God, of his justice against the sin that he would bear. I find this to be a profound, profound commentary about Jesus, that Jesus was afraid not of the storm, he was afraid of, the, of God, of his justice against sin. Jesus was afraid when it mattered most. Are you afraid of the things that matter most? This is what I'm trying to get at, not at the storms we face in our life, but against the justice and the holiness of God. This produces a different sort of fear in us. Again, this is not a fear of shame and condemnation if you know what Jesus has done for you, that he has faced the ultimate storm for you. There's actually a beauty in that. There's actually a majesty in that. And there's actually a peace in having fear of God. How so? Last summer, my wife and I were at a cottage. And as we sat on the end of the dock overlooking the water, there was a sunset and then the clouds began to gather. And just this wall of dark, ominous clouds just grew and grew till it was like just this mountain in front of us and literally like as the sun set it just began to be like lightning all at the same time you could see it was raining and as the rain came and the elements came we didn't want to be you know we were vulnerable to them so and of course we're on a dock and lightning can hit and so we went into uh, the cottage we were staying and we watched as that storm passed over us in all of its beauty and so it is when you are in christ when you are in christ you're safe in him. And all of that, that, that justice against sin and all of the fury against sin becomes something that you can view in awe and wonder for its beauty. That you are safe in him. Oh, 
Isn't that amazing? What power, what beauty, what majesty of God. And so the fear of God then is an invitation to seek refuge in him. You can be safe in him. And so the question becomes this. Do you fear what matters most? Do you fear what matters most like Jesus? Here's what Oswald Chambers would say. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And so to answer the question I posed at the beginning about cultivating our hearts, one of the ways that we can prepare and cultivate our hearts against fear and anxieties is what? Is to remind ourselves who God is, of his power, and of his goodness towards you and towards me. (laughs) That can temper fear and anxiety. Another way to prepare and cultivate our hearts to receive confident faith in him and in his goodness is to confess what we have faith in instead Don't just remember who he is. Say, God, this is what I put my faith in instead of you. Inevitably, our faith is not in nothing. It's often in ourselves that we'll carry ourselves through. We'll see it through the storm. We'll get to the other side. We'll figure it out. We have the power. We have the ingenuity or whatever. But we don't. See, let me speak to anxiety and fear for a minute. It's been said, I think, rather helpfully that anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. I think that's John Mark Comer. <laughs> imagining is a, uh, anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus. And in that case, fear would be imagining the present without Jesus. See, fear is about imminent danger right in front of you. Anxiety is about perceived danger in the future. Now, are anxiety and fear a sin? Well, no. Anxiety and fear are not a sin. They're an emotional, natural reaction, but they can cause us to sin. The question is, how do you deal? How do you respond to your fear and anxiety? Sometimes it can be healthy and natural, like in the case of the lion or whatever that I mentioned before. Other cases, it can be uh, physiological, right? We can go through things in our lives, things like uh, my wife had a baby, so there's prenatal, there's postpartum, or it can even be the aging process itself. That can cause anxieties and fears within us. That we go through in our lives, all of us will go through in our lives, hormonal changes, and that's why, you know, pills can be helpful to rebalance hormones or get things back on track, or talking to people who have understandings of these kinds of things. That can be helpful too. But all that to say, even if it's physiological, it doesn't mean that it gives you an excuse not to fight it. It doesn't mean that you have like a get out of anxiety free, I don't need to, 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 to work with this anymore card, right? We're still to respond to it. This is actually, I'd say, an opportunity to increase our dependence on God. That if you struggle with fears and if you struggle with an anxiety, this is what I found to be the case in my own life. That I can to mediate that as God is working something out for my own good and ask him the question, what are you trying to teach me through this, Father? And he does. You know, one of the things that I'm most anxious about, or was, I think is a better way of saying it, is doing this. Standing here. I never wanted to be a public speaker, more or less a preacher. It was the last thing on my mind. But let me tell you about some of the things I've discovered about anxiety through doing something like this and and taking it to Jesus. Things I found helpful. One of them is to just take a breath and pray. 
God, help me. Something like that. Next is Paul tells us to take every thought captive. Run the thoughts, the anxious thoughts or fears that you're having to the end point. What are they saying? What is, it, what is, that, what is that anxiousness actually about? See, in the case of my preaching, in the case of this, the anxiety I was having was about things like, well, what if I'm, I'm talking to them and I just get to a point where I don't know what I'm going to say anymore and I just... And they all look at me funny and I turn red, you know? What are they going to think of me then, you know? <laughs> or what if I say something they don't like or something that, you know, I say something wrong, the wrong way, you know? Like I, I didn't nuance the anxiety piece correctly. They, they, I, I made it to be a sin and it wasn't or it is a sin and it shouldn't be or this kind of thing, right? People have all sorts of expectations about what I'm doing up here up front. And that gives me anxiety. And so it's important that I take these thoughts captive and I run them to their end point and I say things like, well, well wh- what if then? Well, what if then? What if then if they think poorly of me? Well, I know who I am. I know who Jesus has called me to be. I know that in him I am well beloved. I am re- received by the Father and I am safe with the, in the opinion of the one who matters most. And that's what should matter to me. And so I need to, to, to pray, take a deep breath and pray. I need to take my thoughts captive, examine the end point, where they go, and then I need to confess, Lord, other people's opinions were mattering more to me. They were becoming a storm in my mind that was obscuring who you say I am. Remind me who you say I am. Holy Spirit, speak to my human spirit and remind me that I am a child of God. And you know what I found is that he does. He does. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I figured all this. It doesn't mean I don't even have anxiety right now. It just means that I've experienced the grace of Jesus through him using this kind of thing. Don't look to me. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And I trust that you will find that as you, as you take your thoughts captive, as you confess them for what they are, as you don't, don't just take your anxieties to Jesus and say, Jesus, look how big my anxieties are. Say, anxieties, look how big my Jesus is, you know, you'll find that he begins to change your heart. He really does. I can testify to this in my own life. And so that our confidence and our faith in Jesus increases is really practically how it works, guys. And our anxieties and our fears begin to to diminish. So confess your faith in Jesus. Confess what you do have your faith in as opposed to Jesus uh, and remind yourself who God is. These are ways that you can cultivate confidence in your heart, how you can have confident faith in him. And remember who he is. Remember what this story is about. He is the one whom even the wind and the seas obey. This is what we get as we step back, that this isn't just for the storms in our hearts. It's for the really the storms in our life. This is who God is. He has power over the big and the small. You know, I read a story just this past week of a couple who is sharing Jesus in a faraway place in a remote tribe, and they were in a lake region, and their boat burnt up. The engine burnt up um, 150 miles from their home and from safety in jungle kind of environment. And the husband had opened it. He was looking at it. He's, you know, it's it seized. You know, the motor has literally burnt. And... Um, he closes it, and they're like, what are we going to do? And his wife was like, well, we just need to pray. And he was like, I don't have faith like that. If you're going to pray, you're going to have to do the praying. If we're going to pray, you're going to have to do the praying. 
And she said, okay. And she prayed and she said, you know, push, push the boat back out, try and start it. And he did, and it started. And they drove 150 miles back and the engine died as they pulled into their dock, 50 feet from shore, and they drifted into it. And their team came and they're like, ah, you know, and they explained and they opened the engine and there it was, seized and burnt, impossible, never to be used again. This is the power of God. He is able. That same power that existed then over the winds and the waves exists today. I've known it in my own life. I'll tell that random person's story. I have lots of stories in my own life that I've shared in other messages. God still works this way today. If you are struggling with anxiety and fear, I want to pray with you uh, now as we come to a close. (sighs) Father, I thank you that you are Lord of the cosmos, that you are the one who even the wind and the seas obey. Help us to remember that. Lord, we come to you with anxiousness in our hearts. We come to you with fear in our hearts about all sorts of things. Our mind gets stuck in them. Lord Jesus, help us to break free from these patterns. Help us to see the ends of what they're telling to us, to bring it to you and say, Lord, you're better than what it, whatever it is that's being told to me. You are stronger than whatever it is that's being told to me. You are, you are, you are good more good than whatever it is that is looking bad to me. Help me, Jesus. Holy Spirit, remind me that I'm a son. Remind me that I am held by you, that you care for me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.